look up on the board we have here. It's on page 14. In the red, blue Bible. For all these years, we just got new Bibles, and I would say blue pew Bible, and I almost always stumbled over that. So now I can say red pew Bible, no problem. Today we are pretty used to wives of presidents having uh, a role in the presidency in the last uh, 30 or 40 or 50 years now, I guess. But back in 1845, they weren't used to that. Sarah Polk was the wife of James Polk, the 11th president of the United States. And in Paul Bowler's book, Presidential Wives, he describes her as bright, lively, well-read, and well-spoken. Women complained about her because she preferred to be in the men's parlor talking politics rather than in the women's parlor talking small talk. She did not upstage her husband, but really sought to support him in his presidency. She served as his private secretary throughout his term, looked over newspapers, briefed him on books, discussed current events with him, and informed him on, on political developments. She was the only person Polk truly trusted. Her position brought her importance and prestige and certain privileges. As we look at our scripture today and how God is treating Abraham, it's kind of like how President Polk treated his wife. She had certain privileges. She had a trust that we see God giving to Abraham in our verses today. Look with me, starting in verse 16 of chapter 18. Verse 16. The word of God says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them, to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We're kind of diving into the middle of chapter 18 a narrative about three men who have come to Abraham's tent. In the first 15 verses of this chapter, we find these three men coming. And from verse 19, in chapter 19, verse 1, and in chapter 18, verse 1, we find out that these three men are none other than the Lord and two angels. The Lord and two angels. When you read Lord all capitalized in your Bible, in small letters, but capitalized, that is 
the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. That's the, that's the translator's way of letting us know that that is God Almighty. Now, this is one of the many theophanies that we see in the Old Testament. Theophanies is simply a, 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 an appearance of God on earth. And here we have a theophany in chapter 18. We see these throughout Scripture. We're going to see them a little later in Genesis, in Genesis 32, when we have God wrestling with Jacob. You see it in Numbers, when God confronts Balaam, the prophet, going to prophesy curses against his people. see it in Judges a couple of times, when he calls Gideon, and when he meets Samson's mother and prophesies that she will have a son. So we see appearances of God throughout the Old Testament, called Theophanies. But here he comes for two purposes. He comes for two purposes. And the first one is the first 15 verses. He comes to announce promises fulfilled, to announce a fulfillment, to announce that the promise given way back in Genesis chapter 12 is finally going to be fulfilled. That, that Abraham and Sarah are indeed going to have a child, even though she's way past childbearing age and he is even older. They're going to have a son. and They're going to name him Isaac. The first star, if you will, from chapter 15 will begin to appear in the sky. But the second reason they come is the first point of our sermon. They come to pronounce a judgment. They come to pronounce judgment. After they tell Abraham and Sarah about their impending pregnancy, they get up to leave. And that's kind of where we come into the story. And Abraham escorts them out to, as we seem to see from, from, from Scripture here, to, to the mountain or to a hilltop that kind of overlooks the valley of Zor at the southern end of the Dead Sea. And there is Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're privy to an internal monologue by God, aren't we? We're privy to God talking to himself. In verses 17 through 20, we see him saying, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he goes on to tell them, tell, we begin to hear him talk about why he is going to tell Abraham what he's going to do. Because Abraham is in a trusted position. Just like James Polk's wife, in a trusted position. But also, and here's where we have to read Scripture pretty carefully, also because Abraham's descendants are chosen by God, right? It says right there in verse 18, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and the household after him to keep the way of the Lord. He's chosen them. To, to be righteous, to keep the way of the Lord. And a people that will keep that way. God wants to begin teaching Abraham and his descendants what it means to live righteously. But he also wants them to see what justice looks like. What is it like to live righteously? And what does it look like in God's justice. 2 Peter 2.6 says, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes. 
and made an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example being set forth for Abraham and for his descendants. An example of what happens to the ungodly. An example of God's judgment. Remember that 70s show? Um, I think I mentioned this once years ago. There was a documentary. It was one of the first documentaries on TV where they took cameras into a prison and they took these juvenile delinquents into the prison. I think it was Railway State Prison. And they sat them down and they had prisoners on uh, death row and who had life in prison, judgments on them, come in and tell them what prison life was like. Do you, anybody remember this? It was called Scared Straight. You remember this? And, and the prisoners and the people on death row would tell these uh, 16, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds what it's really like to live in prison. And, and okay, if you're going to continue in this way of life, this is what you can expect. You can expect this and this and this. And it was really quite horrifying what prison life is like. Really. And it was scared straight. Imagine in the decades to follow, Abraham, his descendants would look down at the wasteland that was Sodom and Gomorrah and remember. They would take their children maybe down into that valley that smelled of, of sulfur that, that maybe had little pieces of, of building left. And they'd say to their children, do you want to see what sin looks like? Breathe deeply. Do you want to know what happens to people that, that go their own way, that think that, that they can master, be the master of their own life? Breathe deeply. Do you want to see what happens to people that, that only live for themselves? Look around. You want to know the severity of God's judgment? They'd say, come on, let's take a walk. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment should not be the only reason that you flee to Christ. It really should not be the only reason. But it's biblical that it is part of the reason. That's why God has Sodom and Gomorrah here. That's why we see God's judgments throughout Scripture. It can't be the only reason. It's my, my fire insurance. But biblically, it is a reason. Christ is the burned-over zone that you stand in. I know you've heard this illustration probably dozens of times, but it is so apropos. In the, in the, in the West, when there were, were um, fires on the prairies, the fires would, would sometimes go 20, 30, 40 miles an hour along the prairies. You couldn't outrun it when you saw a, a, a fire coming, so, so they would burn an area around themselves and stand in that burnt-over area, and the fire would come and would pass them by because they were standing in an already burnt-over area. Christ is that already burnt over area that we stand in. He took the judgment of God for us 
and we stand in his burnt over area. And if you put your faith in Christ, when judgment does come, and as we'll see, it does come, it goes past you and you're not harmed. First Corinthians 10 tells us that even the wilderness wandering judgments, you remember that in Numbers, if you're, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you should be around there. The wilderness judgments, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, occur as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, the Bible says, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up and indulged in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened, the Bible says, as examples and were written down as warnings. Make no mistake about it. God will judge. Judgment will happen. We have to be able to equally praise God for his justice and judgment and wrath as for his love and mercy and patience. We tend towards that side, don't we? We love that part of God, his love, his mercy, his grace, his patience with us. And we praise him for that, as we should, but we should also praise him for his perfect justice. His wrath towards sin and his judgments of sin. We have to praise God for who he displays himself to be in Scripture. We have to be careful that we do not apologize for God's just, justice and judgments. We have to be careful that we don't apologize for Sodom and Gomorrah. Because as God tells Abraham, Abraham right here in verse 20, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be judged because their sin is great and very grave. God has finally looked down and had enough with Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. Ezekiel 16:49 actually enumerates their sin. Ezekiel says that Sodom and Gomorrah suffered from pride and gluttony, laziness, a careless attitude towards the poor and needy, haughtiness, and a practice that Ezekiel says is an abomination. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 define this term for us. It says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. An abomination is the sin of homosexuality. That's how God describes that sin. We see in chapters 19 here in Genesis... As we'll see next week in verses 4 and 5, we see this being enacted. The men of the city surround the house of Lot and demand that the two male angels that he has taken into his house be brought out to them so that they may know them. 
K-N-O-W, is an idiom for have sexual relations with them. Why is this sin described so differently in Scripture? Why isn't gossip an abomination? Or flattery an abomination? Or lying an abomination? I think it's because the sin of homosexuality, in particular, erodes some of the basic godly foundations that he lays out in Scripture. I want to list briefly four of them for you. Homosexuality erodes God's most basic distinction. Homosexuality erodes God's most basic distinction. A man and a woman. God created them to be intentionally different. Different in form and different in function. And homosexuality says they're interchangeable. Secondly, homosexuality goes against God's basic design. His most basic design. Genesis 2 tells us that his design is a man and a woman, a man and a wife for life. That's God's most basic design for a relationship. Third, homosexuality goes against God's first command. You know what God's first command was in the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply. It's his very first command to man. And by definition, homosexuality cannot fulfill that command. Fourthly and finally, homosexuality goes against God's grand metaphor. And I think if I can put my own commentary in this, I think this is what inflames the Lord's wrath the most. It goes against God's grand metaphor. In Ephesians 4, we read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Man and a woman in a covenant of marriage is to display before the world Jesus' love for us. And what homosexuality does is it obliterates that image. It distorts it. It warps it. It warps the fact that Christ loved and sacrificed for us and that we are to love and sacrifice and willingly submit to him. It goes against the gospel, what the gospel should look like. And so he comes down to judge this distortion in Sodom and Gomorrah. But as we see again and again and again, if you remember maybe one thing from this sermon, remember this that wherever there is judgment in Scripture, you find mercy. And that's what we see here in the rest of the chapter. Look with me at verse 22 and following. So the men turned 
from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep them away and spare it for fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of fifty righteous are lacking. We destroy the whole city for lack of five. And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Abraham answered, uh, and he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Here we see an appeal to mercy in these verses. An appeal to mercy. The two angels turn and go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. But look where Abraham stands. Did you see where Abraham stands? I think that a a word picture is being painted for us there. He stands right in front of the Lord. Between God and sin. It's actually a very powerful picture of, of Christ in his mediatorial role. He is between us and sin. He is that burned over section we were talking about. And Abraham asks an incredibly intriguing question in verse 23. That's his baseline question. You should underline that. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And here, Abraham is plumbing three things with God. He's asking three things of God. And the first thing he's asking with that question is, what is the depth of your mercy? How merciful are you? He is plumbing the depths of God's mercy. Theologian Derek Kidner wrote, Abraham is exploring and feeling his way to see how far God's mercy might go. How merciful are you really, God? Where's the line? Where, where is it where you lose it like I lose it with my kids? Where is it? Abraham starts by asking if there are 50 righteous people. 
between the two cities. Cities, Will you stay your hand? Will you withhold what they deserve? That's the definition of mercy. Withholding something we deserve. If there's 45, 40, 30, 20, all the way down to 10, how far does your mercy really go? In 1923, Thomas Chisholm wrote a hymn that we all still sing today. Great is thy faithfulness. To probably sing that, the refrain from that, without even having a book in front of us. The refrain goes, Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, great mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. He is simply quoting Lamentations 3, 22, 23. He, was, he read that and that inspired him to, to write that song. Lamentations 3, 22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? His mercies are new every morning. That's what scripture tells us. What does that mean? His mercy is new every morning. The Hebrew word for mercy, or for new, is hadas, meaning new. It means never before experienced. His mercy is never before experienced. That means today, the mercy he's extending me, the mercy he extends you, is totally different from the mercy yesterday. Even though you think, you know what, I think I sinned in the same way. His mercy is new. Just like the seasonal flu vaccine, you know, that the flu changes apparently and we have to get this new concoction. His mercy is new like that every single day. Think about it this way. By the time you're 21... You've lived 7,665 days. That's how many new and totally different types of mercy God has extended you. If you're midlife, it goes up to 16,425 different types of mercy God has extended to you. New every day. By the time you reach retirement, he's mercyed you 23,725 different ways. Just one way to start to get our minds around how, how grand God's mercy is towards us. Arthur, author and theologian Frederick Buchner, he wrote, Romantic love is blind to everything except what is lovable and lovely. But Christ's love sees us with terrible clarity, sees us whole, and loves us anyway. Isn't that beautiful? Romantic love is easy, isn't it? That's what makes marriage hard, doesn't it? You start seeing the person with, to use his words, terrible clarity. Oh my goodness. He isn't like that. Oh my goodness, she isn't like that all the time. But God sees us with infinite clarity. He sees our hearts and he loves us anyway. Isn't that amazing? 
Because of his depth of mercy towards us, he sees us as we really are and loves us because he just extends that new mercy every day. Abraham's question not only plumbs the depths of his mercy, but it also, he's plumbing the effect of the righteous. Not only how, he's not only asking how merciful are you, but he's also asking the question, does, does the righteousness of people have any effect on your judgment, on your justice and judgment? Does the mere presence of the righteous have an effect? If there are righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, does that affect what you're going to do? That's his question. And I think that we can answer very clearly. You don't have to have a Bible dictionary to to figure this out. The answer there is what? Yeah, it affects me. The The presence of righteousness of righteous people will affect my judgment. That's the clear point of the haggling. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And every time God says, yes, I will stop because of the righteous. And I don't think it's all for show. You know, we say things we don't mean a lot of times. But Numbers 23, 19 tells us that God is not a man that he should lie. He never lies. Thus, we believe that if if those angels had found ten righteous people, Sodom and Gomorrah would not have been destroyed. He would have refrained from destroying them. The presence of the righteous affect God's judgment. Put it another way, maybe a clearer way, the presence of God's people benefit the ungodly. 19th century Baptist pastor F.B. Meyer wrote, Ungodly men little realize how much they owe to the presence of the children of God in their midst. The salt to stay its corruption, the light to arrest the reinstitution of the reign of chaos and night. James Boyce, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote, How much the wicked owe to the righteous. For the sake of God's people, blessings have been given to the utterly undeserving, and judgments have been averted from those who would have otherwise been punished. We just have to look at Scripture and see that that is meted out as true. Think of Laban's flock. It multiplied because of Jacob. Think of Potiphar's prosperity in Egypt. He became prosperous because of Joseph. Think of the people on the ship sailing to Rome with Paul. They were saved because of one man, Paul. In other words, our presence in this fallen world has salting and preserving effects. We may never, ever know the extent of it. We, we might never know the extent of it, of what the presence of, of the godly in America has done or how the godly in Maine. My mind was drawn to Southwest Harbor. What has the presence of this church, how has it affected God? I don't know. We, I, I won't know until glory. But I'm, I'm being taught that the the, pres- the mere presence of God's people affects God's judgments. 
It's not a mystery that if they had found ten righteous men, Sodom and Gomorrah would have lasted. God would have stayed his hand. The application for us is that the presence of the righteous has spiritual effects on unbelievers. First Peter, in 2 Peter 2.12, we read, Live such good lives, this is a command to us, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and praise God when he returns. Brothers and sisters, your righteous life lived out to the best of your ability has effects. Has effects in your family, has effects in your town, has effects in your state, and in your nation, and in the world. Secondly, we see as an application, this again in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writes there about people being married to unbelievers. That's what happened in the church in Corinthian. One of the people in the marriage got saved and the other one wasn't. And Paul says, remain in those marriages. Don't leave. That was one of their questions to them. If I become a Christian and my husband doesn't or my wife doesn't, am I able to leave this marriage? And he says, no. Stay in that marriage. And he writes this cryptic line. The unbeliever will be sanctified through you. This is not guaranteeing that that person will become a believer. But what it is saying is that your righteousness lived out in humility, in that marriage, in that covenant, will have effects. If you're in an unequally yoked marriage, you, living that out day to day, will have an effect. Your godly character will have an impact. You forgiving 70 times 7 will have an impact. Your going the extra mile and turning the other cheek will have an impact. Your lack of judgmentalness towards your spouse will have an impact. Your humility and loving submission, even when they don't deserve it, especially when they don't deserve it, will have an impact. Your relentless love for your spouse will have an impact. I think of two examples of this. One in real life and one movie. We just showed the case for Christ a couple months ago down at the library. And what struck me about that movie, among other things, but what really struck me was the wife who became a Christian and Lee Strobel was an atheist. The wife at least it showed it in the movie, she grew in her love for her husband and she expressed it to him. And that had a salting effect on his heart. The other example, I can tell you, was lived out in our midst. When Jim Alexander, after 70, 75 years of disarming Christ, living with Joan Alexander, patiently, lovingly, consistently living a righteous life before him. He accepted Christ. He was baptized right here. The presence of the righteous has an effect, has an impact in God's eyes.
And lastly, Abraham is plumbing the question of guilt, the depth or the extent of God's mercy, the effect of the righteous, and the question of guilt. In Middle Eastern culture, you know that Abraham's question, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked, is actually countercultural. He's asking a countercultural question there. Semitic people as a culture have a deep sense of corporate guilt, a deep sense of imputed guilt, if you will. The sin or guilt is not just a personal thing, it's a corporate thing. In Middle Eastern culture, if one person in the family does something that's wrong, the whole family feels the guilt of it, feels the shame of it. It impacts the whole family or clan or people. We see this in very, very clearly in Nehemiah. The first chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, is serving the king in Babylon. The, the people of Israel, uh, of Judah, have been, have been taken into capti- captivity uh, decades previous. And he learns of, the, of Jerusalem and, and the ruins of Jerusalem. And he, his heart is cut to the quick. And he prays this prayer. Listen to this prayer. Nehemiah prays, who, who had nothing to do with that sin. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's household, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands. Nehemiah owns the guilt. Nehemiah owns the sin of his people. That's very, very Middle Eastern. While we in the West think of it very individualistically, don't we? What I do doesn't hurt anybody else. Right? We hear that all the time. I'm not hurting anybody else by doing what I'm doing. When in fact, that's not true. Perhaps we can understand this a little bit back in 2006, if you remember the Duke lacrosse team scandal. Do you remember that? Where three members of the Duke lacrosse team were accused of raping this woman. And the fallout was for the whole team, right? The whole team was at first suspended for the next two games, and then the, the coach was forced to resign, and then the president of the university canceled the rest of the lacrosse season because of what these three individuals did. The Duke lacrosse team paid the price In other words, the sins of the few were credited to the many. But what Abraham stands before the Lord and asks is a question that explores the opposite. He knew what it was like in his culture. He knew that sins of the few made the many guilty. But Abraham was asking God, is it possible that the opposite can be true? Is it possible for the innocence of the few to save the many? That's what we're getting at, right? 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Few saving many. That's what he's probing with God. And along with Abraham, we begin to see that God says what? Yeah. 
45, sure. 40, absolutely. 30, yeah. 20, mm-hmm. 10, oh yeah. Innocence can save the wicked. That's where we see the gospel in this passage. That's where we see the gospel in this passage. The gospel tells us that it's not ten who will save a city, not five who will save a country, but there's going to be one that will save the world. That's what the gospel is all about. You know the John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in that one person, that one innocent person, will not die, but have eternal life. What this whole passage is pointing towards is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. If there is one innocent person, that can save the many. That's what this table is set up to show us, brothers and sisters. That's what this table, he commands us over and over again to do this in remembrance of me, not just to trigger a memory, but for us to, to re-engage and re-embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is there was one person who lived a perfect life, a totally perfect life. Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus was tempted in every, every single way that you and I are tempted, and yet did not sin. In other words, he lived 30 or 33 years not sinning. And he earned heaven. And God was pleased with him, right? It says it several times in Scripture. I'm, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Why was he pleased with him? Because he was living a perfect life. There was one person that was totally innocent and he allowed himself to be declared guilty. You know, as we go towards Easter, reread those passion narratives and be struck to the heart by how he was perfect. And he allowed himself to be struck and spit upon, crown of thorns, back torn, taking the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve. He took that willingly. And he was totally innocent. He allowed himself to be tacked to a cross and die. Pay the penalty of sin. That's the penalty of sin. That's the penalty we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. Death. It's the penalty we see meted out spiritually every single day. Death. He allowed himself to be put to death so that I and you, and if you're here and don't know Christ, you potentially can turn to Christ and say, I trust what he did on my behalf. I can't do it. I think I can. I can't do it, but I trust that he did it for me. 
as John 3.16 says, then I live forever, even though he dies. He takes my penalty. But praise be to God that he rose from the dead on the third day, right? Conquering sin, Satan, and death. And now as we sung and as we prayed, he stands at the right hand of God, still loving us. Every single day. It's amazing. That's what this table is for. It's for people who actually embrace what I just said and say, yep, that's me. That describes my assurance is in Christ, not me. If you're here today and that does not describe you, if, if, if you don't understand what I just said,